I'm Faz Shakir. I'm Amanda Littman. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This week, we are talking to Charlotte Alter, a senior correspondent at Time and the author of a fantastic book about millennials and politics called The Ones We've Been Waiting For. It just came out again in paperback. Highly recommend it. Yeah, we talked to Charlotte about Elise Stefanik, the new House Conference Chair of the Republican Party. She recently replaced Liz Cheney in that role. And we talk about both Elise and Liz Cheney and a little bit about this quote-unquote cancel culture that the Republicans are so fond of discussing and how they've actually embraced it within their own ranks, apparently. Baz, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about this week in politics before the interview with Charlotte. But first, I want to make sure that our listeners know that we are here. You can call us, you can email us with questions, topics you want to cover, people you want us to talk to, anything on your mind. Or you can tell us about complaints, things you don't like, things you didn't enjoy us doing. (laughs) I like disagreement, so don't hold back. Let us know. I don't, and we'll shit talk you right back. (laughs) But don't let that stop you. You can leave us a voicemail at 929-399-6748. Again, that is 929-399-6748. We might play it in an upcoming episode and try and answer your question or respond to whatever you've got to say. Yeah, or you can be digital and email us at battleground at therecount.com. That's battleground, one word, at therecount.com. Okay, before we get into it with Charlotte, I want to know, Amanda, what's your number one political issue that's been on your mind this week? Baz, I am feeling real, real mad. Our (laughs) friend, Ari Berman. (laughs) Going that well, is it? I'm outraged. (laughs) Our friend Ari Berman, who we had on the podcast a couple weeks ago, recently got a pretty big scoop that has illuminated something really important about the wave of voter suppression laws that we talked about with him a couple weeks ago. Ari found a video leaked from a big donor conference put together by the Heritage Foundation, which is a Republican think tank, action group, advocacy group, lobbyist firm, you know, whole mess of organizations that really has pushed the Republican agenda for the last 20 or 30 years. What the group take credit for is orchestrating, writing, pushing, lobbying for, basically being the driving force behind the voter suppression laws we are seeing moving their way through Republican state legislatures. They are bragging about how they have orchestrated the entire Republican ecosystem and organized these weekly calls to make sure everyone's singing from the same playbook and that they have an echo chamber talking about the big lie and voter integrity in service of passing these voter suppression laws. And they even say they're going to spend upwards of $24 million over the next two years in eight key battleground states specifically to get these laws passed in such a way that it makes it really, really hard for folks who are likely to be Democratic voters to show up at the polls. That in and of itself makes me fucking furious. It's also the background upon which they're working that I am getting so riled up about. You know, the reason that they have the foundation to pass these laws, to navigate through these state capitals, is because over the last 15 years, you know, as we've talked about many times before, Republicans have actively and aggressively invested in winning state legislative chambers specifically for this purpose, while the Democratic Party has neglected it. So they are now using the decade of work they spent in these state capitals to ultimately cement what could be and might be sustainable power for what is honestly a minority of voters. And it makes me so angry. 
Faz, are you mad about something? Are you inspired by something? <laughs> <laughs> I guess uh, we're always uh, a little peeved about something that's going on. But I, I was going to take a moment to just reflect on a big national kind of thing going on with Biden. Mm. I think we're heading into the crux of a critical decision of the Biden administration. So here we are in an infrastructure battle and people's eyes glaze over it, but it carries huge impact right now. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden is a deal maker. He would love to get 10 Senate Republicans. He would probably come down off of the number that he's suggested, I'm sure, and in order to get that deal. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Mitch McConnell's not going to give it to him. He said as much, right? He's 100% focused on stopping him. Mm-hmm. So this week, Shelley Moore Capito, a Republican senator from West Virginia, was supposed to come in and offer a counter proposal to Joe Biden. So they have a meeting set up at the White House, and Senator Capito comes in with their team and doesn't offer a counter proposal. Shock of all shocks. So obviously, what they're trying to do is drag this thing, and time is our enemy here. And I will say this really quickly about Joe Biden. I think they are really intelligently gaming this out because they're saying, listen, we're not going to get caught by Republicans saying we aren't paying for infrastructure. So we're going to actually offer a pay for on infrastructure, and it is going to be corporate tax. It's going to be making the wealthy pay their fair share, which, quite frankly, all of us as progressives want to get 100% behind. So they got that going for them, and they've got holding Republicans to their own commitments during the Trump administration. Oh, we care about infrastructure. We want infrastructure. Great. Okay. We'll call you on it. Now it gets into this debate over who's going to pay for it. (laughs) And actually Republicans are for a tax increase, something that we're not used to seeing. Mm -hmm. Republicans want a tax increase for the middle class, like through a gas tax, through, you know, toll roads, Mm. taxing electric vehicles. That's where they want to place the burden, not on the wealthiest in our society. And so here we have this critical juncture where Joe Biden's got to make a decision. This is the thing I think people aren't as aware of, and I honed in on quite closely, which is the Senate calendar. And if you look forward, they will not be around for much of June, much of July, literally the entire month of August. There's dates in September. They're not around. It is a wild thing. I urge you to go check it out on the Senate.gov. There are so many box days that they are not going to be around. So you have to make a decision. It ends up being the case, I think, that Memorial Day becomes a critical juncture at which you have to decide, do you move forward as a Senate Democratic caucus or not? We end up right now, Amanda, at this critical juncture in the next couple of weeks where Joe Biden makes kind of a fateful decision about his presidency and how we move forward. And that is what is on my mind. Faz, you really just scared the living shit out of me that we're not going to get an infrastructure bill. I think it's really critical that you make judgments that this is a priority you got to move forward. And by the way, Amanda, you're setting the stage for things like voting rights. If we're going to get there, we got to have some votes on those things too, right? Mm-hmm. Building towards a filibuster reform conversation for next year, setting up the Senate races. There's not much time. Again, I urge people to take a look at that Senate calendar and it'll, it'll start to scare you because if you look at the number of days when they're in session, it's probably just a Tuesday, Wednesday, and a Thursday. So that Monday and the Friday often don't even count. So then you look at how many weeks are in, there's like just a handful of weeks in the year that are left. It's crazy. It does feel like being a United States Senator is maybe the best and worst job at the same time. You don't have to work that hard, but the work you do is really hard. All right, Amanda. I think we're ready to bring Charlotte into the conversation. Let's get to it. Charlotte Alter, welcome to Battleground. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. We wanted to talk to you a little bit about Elise Stefanik, who you know quite well from having reported on her for years and having written about her in your awesome, awesome book. Um, She's in the news a ton lately. So before we get into sort of what she represents, what's happening with the Republican Party and all of that, can you level set a little bit with 
the story of Elise? Yes. The reason I've been reporting on Elise for so long is because she was one of the main characters in my book, which is called The Ones We've Been Waiting For. The paperback is out next week. And Amanda, you and I talked a lot for this project. The book is about millennial leaders. It is true that millennials lean overwhelmingly to the left (laughs) um, and are largely liberal. And we saw, particularly with the Bernie Sanders campaign, how much traction progressive ideas have with this generation. But it's not 100%. It's actually more like 65, 35, give or take. And so it was really important to me in the book to paint an accurate picture of this generation, which includes a significant minority of conservatives. And Elise was one of the conservatives that I wrote about. The reason I picked her is because at that time, she was somebody who seemed to be embodying a 21st century millennial conservatism Uh in that she was somebody who recognized that climate change was real. (laughs) recognized that people her age were having trouble affording college. She wasn't an anti-LGBTQ culture warrior. She recognized that LGBTQ rights is something that young people are done fighting over. (laughs) And this generation just has a broad acceptance of all genders and sexualities. But politically, Charlotte, we should make this point, is that she was representing a district that Barack Obama had won twice. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the big changes here. So the point is, she was once this kind of vision of a version of the Republican Party that could potentially appeal to millennials, partly because she was representing this more moderate district. And the way I began to think of it as I reported the book was that this generation broadly agrees on what the problems are. You know, they agree that climate change is a problem. Mm -hmm. They agree that inequality is a problem. They agree that college affordability is a problem. They just have really different ideas of what the solutions were. So somebody like Elise Stefanik was offering a very different solution to college affordability than somebody like AOC is, for example. Mm -hmm. But something happened to her along the way. Something happened (laughs) along the way. (laughs) Don't think she's any of those things anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Well, it wouldn't be a good story if nothing happened to her along the way. So (laughs) one of the things that happened is that her district radically changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a district that is largely white, working class, rural voters. And it's like if you were to paint a picture of the Trumpiest type of district, hers would fall in that category. Her district went heavily for Trump in 2016 and 2020. And the important thing to remember about Elise Stefanik is that she's super intelligent, super ambitious, and she's a Republican in New York, which means that statewide office was not going to happen for her. Mm -hmm. So she's not going to be governor. She's not going to be a senator. So the only way forward for her was to hold on to this district that was hurtling to the right and to rise within the Republican Party. So I think that's ultimately why you see Elise Stefanik transforming the way that she did. And what does Donald Trump think of Elise Stefanik? He thinks she's a star. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of the things that I unpacked a little bit in the book. At the beginning, Elise Stefanik was not a Trumpster. Mm -hmm. Right. She sort of tried to talk about him as little as possible. When he would do these outrageous things like the Muslim ban, she would issue these really tepid statements that were kind of designed to register her disapproval, but not really make any waves. And she was trying to tiptoe around him. And then a couple things happened. One, 
Trump came to visit her district, which was a high, really, really successful trip. And she saw that her constituents were going crazy for him and they loved him. And again, this is a woman for whom her entire political future is wrapped up in keeping her district. Mm-hmm. Two is that a lot of her peers who had been her type of millennial moderate trying to be like, climate change is real. <laughs> Let's do something on immigration. You know, a lot of those people lost their seats or retired in 2018. And the third thing that happened was that she was on the intelligence committee. And someone who knows her well told me that she began to feel like Democrats on the intelligence committee were sort of unfairly railroading Trump over the Russia investigation. And this is one thing that I noticed over the course of reporting on these young conservatives is that a lot of times Trumpism starts out as anti-anti-Trumpism. That kind of led her to the star turn that she had in 2019 in the impeachment hearings where she was his most aggressive defender in the impeachment hearings. Then she raised millions of dollars off of that, and she was off to the races. I mean, this is an important point on ideology, because we started this conversation about Lee Stefanik on, oh, here's some issues that she was moderate slash reasonable on, and now we've become a Trump loyalist. You know, 538 does a tracking of which members of Congress vote most closely with Donald Trump. And Elise Stefanik is actually one of the least likely among Republicans to vote with her, which obviously tracks with a little bit of the district. And Liz Cheney, who she's replacing, <laughs> was a very strong supporter of Donald Trump's agenda, upwards of 92, 93% consistent voting record, whereas Elise Stefanik's is around 77%. And in between there, where Liz Cheney is and where Elise Stefanik is, you get people like Dan Crenshaw, mm-hmm. you get people like the wonderful and famous Matt Gates, uh, you get people like Paul Gosar, <laughs> Mo Brooks. So this is interesting because in many ways, if you were just judging this in ideology, Liz Cheney is it. Yeah, She's the one who stands with the president. But in fact, what the Republican Party has come to represent, and you were kind of getting at this about how Lee Stefano took a stand during the intelligence hearing, is that did you project out that you love Donald Trump in some really favorable fashion or form. That's what Donald Trump loves. He doesn't care about your votes. He doesn't care about the ideology. He doesn't care about what you stand on. Did you kind of take a stand for me as a person? That's the ideology. I don't know how you score that. But on that score, Liz Cheney's at the bottom <laughs> and Elise Stefanik and Matt Gates are at the very top in Donald Trump's mind. I think you're 100% right. I mean, Trumpism is the ideology, full stop. And we saw that even in 2020 when the Republicans did not put out a policy platform. Their platform was Trump is Trump is Trump is Trump. Done. Even on all these other metrics, the Heritage Foundation puts out a metric of conservatism where Liz Cheney is far more conservative than Elise Stefanik. Um, The calculus has changed for who counts as a hard right candidate in the Republican Party. And it's not so much about positions on the issues anymore as it is about loyalty to Trump. We have to take a quick break to play a few ads. More with Charlotte Alter when we return. Welcome back to Battleground. Let's continue our conversation with Charlotte Alter. One of the things you did in your some of your reporting for a story you had in Time Magazine last week was going back to some of her like high school and college friends who knew Elise when she was that age. 
And they talk about how disappointed they are in her and how surprised they are that she's changed. I suppose the answer to this doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, it's what she does that makes an impact. But do you think she genuinely believes the bullshit she's selling? I do and I don't. So one of the things that was particularly alarming about this reporting is that when I reported on Elise in 2018 and 2019 for my book, I was surprised at how everybody that I talked to, including Democrats, including people who she had beaten in congressional elections, like her opponents who ran against her, said things to me like, we disagree on the issues, but she's really intelligent and she has integrity and she's a person of character and I have a deep respect for her. You know, she had a tremendous amount of goodwill. Mm -hmm. And then when I called people back recently after everything that's happened, it's just been a complete 180. And I think that that's what people are finding to be so fascinating and frankly alarming about the story is that she's not a Matt Gates. Mm -hmm. She's not a Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's not somebody who came into Congress on the crazy train. <laughs> she's somebody who had positioned herself very strongly as this figurehead of the modern millennial conservative movement to try to speak to that 30 to 40 percent of young people who identify as conservative. Mm -hmm. And then she just totally pivoted to an embrace of Trumpism. In her letter to the Republican conference, the things that she laid out as like where she would stand on leadership were entirely around messaging and communications and media. It had nothing to do with any kind of policy position. And it reminded me a lot of Madison Cawthorn, the Republican congressman from North Carolina, who, who straight up said, he's like, I'm not here to legislate. I'm here to communicate. Hired mostly communication staffers. It really does embody the sort of Trump way of governing, which is the only thing that matters is the brand you are selling and what's actually behind it is meaningless. Well, that goes exactly to Faz's point. Yeah. There is no policy positioning here. It's all about messaging. Because in an ideal world, the elevation of Elise Stefanik would mean that Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer might have someone <laughs> that you were like, oh, we might agree on a thing here or there, education, climate change or something. But in fact, she gets into symbolism of what the Republican Party is. She's been elevated not for ideology, not for substance. She's been elevated because there's a good messenger there who's going to stay in the party line, who's with Donald Trump, most importantly. And we're going to consolidate and unify the entire Republican Party so that when we go into 2022, we've got some messengers who speak purportedly to some quote-unquote moderate base out there in Elise Stefanik. But more importantly, we don't have dissension in the ranks mm -hmm. of a leader who's raising concerns about Donald Trump, that their idea is unify, consolidate, project out for 2022 because they think they're on a good path. And I think that's what's dangerous here is they might actually have that right, that they might have sacked Liz Cheney for the right reasons that, well, okay, we've, we've eliminated a problem that would have dogged us into 22, revisiting the January 6th storming of the Capitol, the takeover, and then also the big lie being constantly over our heads. We're going to just eliminate it. And on the political calculus, the sad part is, dangerous part, quite frankly, is that they might have it right if they look at just their base, that they are consolidating and speaking directly to them. And I just wonder how the hell do you even get around this political problem? Yeah, I mean, well, this is one of the scariest things that has happened in the last four or five years. There's this vicious cycle of how conspiracy theories move through our political system that is fairly new. Mm -hmm. Because what's happening here is that you have a base 
that fully believes in Trump's conspiracy theories that he was for many years able to broadcast through his social media and now is sending these pathetic statements out to reporters, which like still somehow reach his base because I guess it gets through to Fox News or something like that. But he was able to essentially divorce a large proportion of the Republican base from any kind of reality-based mindset. I mean, I began to think of it when I was reporting on 2020 as unlogic. <laughs> it's not just believing one false thing or believing in one big lie. It is an entire worldview that is rooted in connecting things in ways that don't make sense. <laughs> but what happens is that that kind of conspiracy thinking and that kind of mindset essentially gets laundered upwards. So if you have somebody like Annalise Stefanik, who probably on her own, were she not part of the 2021 Republican Party, I would bet a lot of money would not be questioning the legitimacy of an electoral college outcome. But because she has to respond to the Republican base, which is saying stop the steal, translates into people like Lee Stefanik saying that they have concerns about irregularities. Ted Cruz even said this when he voted to overturn the Electoral College results. He said, this is a reality for millions of Americans. He didn't say this is a reality. Yeah. And that's the real scary thing here. And there's some tension, too, of like the decision that they are making makes sense in the short term political reality. But younger Republican voters are actually much more moderate to even liberal than older Republican voters on everything from taxes to climate change, to immigration, to gender and LGBT issues. They more closely resemble centrist Democrats than they do 45 plus Republicans. So unless that unlogic reality starts to seep down to them, there is some long term loss for the Republican Party. Maybe? I don't know. I hope. <laughs> well, the thing that's tricky about this is that you are half right because they did. They did. That was true. That was true in 2014 and 2015 when Elise Stefanik was coming up. Younger Republicans were and still are much more moderate on things like climate and immigration and LGBTQ issues and racial inequality. The problem is that a lot of the people who once identified as young Republicans in 2014 no longer call themselves young Republicans. They're independents now. Hmm. There was a study from Pew that came out in 2017 that found that between 2015 and 2017, so we know what happened in that time period, <laughs> a quarter of young Republicans permanently defected from the party. So I think the thing to keep in mind when we're looking at polls of young Republicans right now is that we're looking at polls of people who still identify as Republicans, even after everything that's happened. We're not looking at polls of people who would have identified as Republicans in the 2012 election or even in 2014 or 2015. You know, one pollster said to me, it's almost like when you reduce a sauce, you <laughs> boil off all of the water and you're left with the most intense part. That's what's happened to the Republican base, particularly with young people. But people who say that the Republican Party is over because of their age problem are totally wrong. And in fact, there is basically only one area where the Republican Party and the conservative movement is attracting young people. And that's on some cultural issues around things like free speech 
and cancel culture. And it's this very uncomfortable thing for people on the left to discuss because it raises all kinds of icky questions about cancellation. Like, listen, I'm not trying to be a cancel culture warrior. Like, that's not. But, but you know, talking to, for example, people like Dan Crenshaw, he's a conservative, but he doesn't get really animated about taxes. <laughs> he doesn't get really animated about blocking climate change legislation. The things that get him really animated are when Dr. Seuss is canceled. <laughs> That's why Fox News is so obsessed with these kinds of culture war stories, because they actually do pay off with this base, including with young people. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you know, you got cancel culture occurring right before your eyes. You literally have canceled Liz Cheney. That is what has happened. Totally. You've canceled. And yet, oh, the liberals, they just want to engage in cancel culture. What'd you just do? Oh. You know, it's amazing, but they'll foment it and make you feel like that's what the liberals are all about. It's on these other social cultural issues. Of course. I think you're 100% right. I mean, Liz Cheney was canceled in every definition of the word. She lost her job because of things that she said. You know, that's it. Yeah. But I guess the reason that it is such a potent tool is that the message is not these are people that you hate who are doing this crazy stuff around Dr. Seuss or telling kids on campus that they can't eat burritos because it's cultural appropriation or whatever issue du jour Fox News is inflating into a big deal. It's not that you hate these people. It's that these people hate you. It's grievance. That's the message. It's that these people who want to make the homecoming king and queen gender neutral, these people who want to take down Confederate statues, they hate you. They think you're racist. They think you're sexist. They are looking down at you from their Ivy League positions. And Unfortunately, that's a really compelling argument to a lot of conservatives, and it's also something that progressives and liberals constantly step in and reinforce and do the job for them. We will be back with Charlotte Alter from Time Magazine after a short break. Welcome back to Battleground. We are talking to Charlotte Alter about cancel culture. This, to me, is like the fundamental question of our time of how we challenge and defeat this ideology, because I think Joe Biden is trying with great intention, and I applaud the path he's taking. I agree with it, which is to say, policy-wise, I'm going to deliver for you. <laughs> There's going to be American Relief Plan. You're going to get vaccinations. You're going to get direct payments. I'm going to try to expand health care. Do all these kinds of things and, and hit you with an improved standard of living. But the fundamental question is... Does policy matter to these people? Does government executing policies matter to the Trump base? Because ultimately, it might be the case that, hey, yeah, you've improved my standard of living. I see that. Yeah, Joe Biden did this. But culturally, you aren't one of us. And therefore, just on these quote-unquote values issues, there's just a divide, and that's the thing I vote on. And we've deemed you to be on the wrong side. 
you take vaccinations, right? Like with Joe Biden at the helm here, we got people vaccinated, made it available to all society. You can choose to take it. I think he's making the right decision saying, okay, now you don't have to wear a mask. But what about the people who don't want to vaccinate and don't want to wear masks? Do you do a version of a democratic nanny statism of say, hey, go wear the vaccine. We, we will all burden ourselves with wearing this mask so that we can take care of those who don't get vaccinated. That's what they want to bait you into, right? They want to bait you into some kind of a debate over liberals want to tell us what to do and control our lives. And they're making it a cultural issue that I just think, quite frankly, there's just clear dividing lines of how we think that are different from how other people <laughs> who are voting for Trump think. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I think one of the reasons that Biden won and one of the reasons that he's got fairly good approval ratings right now, given how divided the country is, is because he's been really strategic about avoiding some of these hot button cultural issues. He avoids stepping in it. <laughs> he avoids poking the bear in a way that, frankly, a lot of other Democrats kind of delight in fighting in this mud fight. But I think, Faz, what you're really talking about is a negotiation of the politics of shame, which is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. I feel like what's been happening over the last five or six years is that Democrats have begun to use shame as their most powerful political weapon. And it is a really powerful weapon, you know, to be ashamed at the racial and structural inequalities in this country, to be ashamed that we're a country where so many children go without food and where so many people are homeless and we're the richest country in the world and yet there's so much poverty in this country. So much of the way Democrats talk about issues is informed by an idea of shame. And I think, unfortunately, on the Republican side, and you only have to look at Matt Gates to see this, Republicans have developed a shamelessness that makes them absolutely impervious. Yeah. It's a response to Democrats kind of cloaking so many arguments in a question of shame and morality. And the fact that Matt Gates is like still in Congress after having sex with these teenage girls, allegedly, just shows that this is a party where shamelessness is now a virtue. Well, and I think it works for a very specific type of politician because we've seen a couple of Democrats get away with it, too. You know, Ralph Northam in Virginia, Cuomo now in New York, a few others where it's mostly white men. Of course. And I think this is something that Biden can get away with, too, by not stepping in the sticky stuff because he is not responsible for speaking for women or people of color or any other marginalized group. He doesn't have to participate in a conversation because it's not really about him or his community, so to speak. I do think that's a place where, like, because most Republican elected officials, and this has only changed a little bit in the last two years, are white men, they have some leeway, some imperviousness to not give a shit what people think and what people say. They also have a more unified voter base that Democrats don't have. The Democrats have the big tent. We have a diverse group of people, a multiracial, multiethnic voting group mm -hmm. that has as well, a really vibrant activist community that fights for but doesn't always speak for those voters, which is an important distinguishment, that makes it really tricky. And I don't know how you get around those sort of complicated structural existences. <laughs> like, how is AOC supposed to govern or supposed to communicate if not 
to engage in these conversations that are directly about both the activists that she's in partnership with and also the community she ostensibly represents. It's true. She doesn't get that privilege. It's true. She doesn't get that leeway that Joe Biden has. It's, it's totally true. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about Liz Cheney for a second? Yeah. <laughs> so I've been curious about her stand and what you think about it. On the one hand, when you stand alone, I think it's hard in politics when you're at that level of power and influence and you stand alone. It is difficult. And I think for that, she deserves a great amount of you know applause. As much as we might say, oh, yeah, it's easy to take on Donald Trump. <laughs> it's a difficult life. And she's encountering you know a lot of pains along the way. But she's done it. She's stayed true to it. One of our researchers dug up this amazing thing back from a few years ago, the birther controversy. It was obviously one of the origin stories of Donald Trump. Where was Liz Cheney on the birther story? Well, actually, you know, she went on Larry King Live and was asked about it and did not dispute it. In fact, said, you know, this is what happens when you have a president who doesn't stand up for America and is seen as, as representing people abroad, you know, and she leaned into it a little bit, just as Donald Trump very aggressively leaned into it. And so it's not as if it's beneath her to stand up for various conspiracy theories that might be politically popular. But it's gotten to a place where I think what's going on is a little bit of direction of the Republican Party and she being of the Cheney-Bush world, who Romney worlds of thinking like, hey, you know, we Republicans, we have conservative agendas. We can win on the backs of not being this style of Trump Republican is, is really kind of wanting to have, I think, a fight over that. And she's losing it. She's losing it in a big way. But I wonder where you think the future of Liz Cheney is going now that she has essentially get booted out, canceled cultured <laughs> out of the Republican leadership. Where is this all going for her? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I didn't know that about birtherism, but it doesn't surprise me. There is now a media narrative around Liz Cheney that she's some kind of hero. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that. Buying into birtherism is a very classic kind of conservative, playing dirty conspiracy theory that has had tremendous sway within the Republican Party. I think what is interesting about her and what is frankly scary about the rest of the party is that where she drew the line was not at telling lies. It wasn't at embracing conspiracy theories. It wasn't at doing dirty politics, which we know a lot of people on both sides of the aisle play dirty politics. Where she drew the line was at the structures and institutions of American democracy and whether she was going to go along with her party as they violated the Constitution in order to steal a presidential election. So I think that the fact that that's where she drew the line and that the rest of the party blew right past that line is really scary because I don't know if a Republican Congress, you know, if Republicans retake the House in 2022, which is likely usually the party out of power wins the House. I don't know that they would certify a Democratic winner in 2024. You know, Liz Cheney definitely is not going quietly. She's definitely out there saying that she's going to be trying to lead on this issue. I don't know if it's that she's running for president. Who knows? I mean, a lot of people are speculating that. I don't have reporting that says that that's true or not. But I could see a world where she continues to be a thorn in their side. I struggle with this a little bit because the more she is a thorn in their side, the more money they're able to raise. She gives them another like enemy to have to raise grievance against, to be the victim of, of like the Cheney Republican establishment going up against the Trump MAGA world. It makes them stronger. 
And I don't know how you compete with a villain for whom always will get stronger. You know, I think it works both ways. You're right. It could help them raise money. But also, if she's a hardcore conservative, constitutional conservative, somebody who's out there saying that she's fighting for the Constitution in a way that the people who are on the same side as the capital insurrectionists are not, and she's able to shave off even a couple points, I think it could really help the Democrats. She's not going to take advice from me, but (laughs) I think that to the extent that she really cares about the future of the Republican Party and wants to institute some pain for their decision to boot her, I think what she has an opportunity to do is not go silently into the night. And obviously what they were trying to do was buy her silence, really force her into silence. Say, hey, if we kick you out of leadership and you're a nobody from Wyoming now, mm-hmm. then it doesn't matter what you say. Therefore, your concerns about the big lie and the storming of the Capitol, what it means for our democracy, they don't matter. And I think she could choose to say it does. <laughs> and really like say, over the next year, I will be a thorn in your side. I know you had wanted me not to be, but I'm going to stand up and speak out at every opportunity I get and remind voters in key places. If she could choose to travel around the country, she can go to different places. John Boehner, she gets a support network of people. Mm-hmm. She could choose to say, hey, I'm going to make this a political problem for you, make you have to choose which direction you're going to go down. And I think it'll be interesting to see, does she basically go silently now or does she turn up the dial and say, now I'm free and I will exercise my voice. Yeah. I mean, I don't see any indication that she's going to go silently. I think the question is, what does that structurally look like? Does it look like a campaign during the midterms? Does it look like a long shot presidential race as a third party? I think that that's a really interesting question and it remains to be seen. I mean, the tiniest violin in the world, but it does strike me that being a member of Congress right now is really fucking miserable. That there is almost, you're both nodding. There's no joy in that job right now. It's a very hostile work environment. And yes, as we see with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like, her colleague, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and making. I was just seeing something earlier today, someone getting into a screaming match with Eric Swalwell on the floor. Like, it seems bad. It seems bad. What is her political future like if not in Congress and not necessarily running for president? Can she run for higher office in Wyoming? Liz Cheney? Yeah. That's the difference between Liz Cheney and Elise Stefanik. I mean, assuming Liz Cheney is able to keep her popularity in Wyoming, which I would assume has dropped somewhat, but is probably not to zero, Mm -hmm. that is a Republican state. She could run for Senate. She could run for governor. She has tons of deep connections to the establishment of that state. The Cheneys are like the Kennedys of Wyoming. (laughs) So it's like... She's got a lot of options in a way that Elise Stefanik has very few options in New York. It does strike me that there is a path forward for Democrats that in some ways involves partnering with Liz Cheney and the like to deliver tangible results for people, but also to really hold these anti-democracy, the pro-insurrection, the pro-corruption Republicans accountable. Because that is something that sort of does cross party lines, that does engage people, and it shows Democrats fighting for 
of value beyond like an item, which I think was really, really important to keep that base excited and to keep the activist community excited when they're having to compromise in so many other ways. Because mm-hmm. I think, Charlotte, you get at something that you and I have talked about before. The greatest divide for most Americans is not partisanship. It's whether or not they give a shit about politics. Yeah. And whether or not they're paying attention. Right. It's a really hard thing for people who work in this space to internalize. One thing I think about a lot is this is like really a deep cut. <laughs> but I think about the like Beto O'Rourke, Will Hurd road trip that they did where it was like, mm-hmm. I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, we're going on a road trip. There was no policy win from that. That was not a thing that had any real political significance, except that a lot of people who maybe don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about politics saw that and were like, huh, that's nice. Nice that those guys are friends. Cool. Moving on. You know. <laughs> And that's, I think, one thing people kind of forget. Oftentimes, people who spend a lot of time thinking about politics and are very deep into their particular position for their particular reasons and their particular corner of the ideological spectrum, when they see somebody from their team mixing with somebody from another team, they tend to perceive it as a betrayal. Yeah. Like, how dare they go get drinks together or work together on something? Like, that person had a terrible position on this other thing that I care a lot about that makes them evil. For example, one thing I'm thinking of recently is Pete Buttigieg and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who are not ideological allies. (laughs) But they were at a dog park together and then... Got tacos. They Yeah, a couple of weeks later, they got tacos. Like, listen, no one's pretending that either of them are going to radically morph their positions to accommodate the other. But I think, frankly, ordinary Americans like to see that it's like, hey, people can be friends. Like, it's not all open war all the time. And I think that Biden and, frankly, what happened at the end of the primary where Biden and Sanders had that endorsement moment and then the task forces, which I continue to think were a really underappreciated, very important moment in this presidential election, were a really great example of how to do that and how to kind of bridge real serious policy differences, but in a way that felt personable and friendly. You know, we could have a whole separate conversation about how most people would prefer politics to be kind of like a Friends episode of mostly hanging out, having a good time with occasional conflict that wraps up in a nice bow. That's for another conversation, though. Another conversation. (laughs) Charlotte Alter, a wonderful reporter at Time Magazine, covers national politics. Thank you for joining this conversation with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much to Charlotte Alter for joining us on this episode of Battleground. Again, pick up a copy of her book that just got re-released in paperback this week. A reminder that if you have thoughts or feelings or hated this conversation or loved this conversation or have people you want us to talk to or never talk to, you can give us a call at 929-399-6748. Leave us a voicemail and we could play it on an upcoming episode. You can also shoot us an email, battleground at therecount.com. We would love to hear from you. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, uh, positive reviews only, please give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams is our assistant producer. And Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer. 